Welcome to Practically Healthy by Dr. Melina. I'm your host, Dr. Melina Jampolis, and I'm a board-certified physician nutrition specialist. And I started this podcast to take the latest science and really help you figure out what you should do, can do, and eventually will do when it comes to food, fitness, and everything that's involved with helping you become the best version of yourself. I'm very excited about my guest today. Dr. Michael Roizen has a new book out called The Great Age Reboot, and you probably have heard of him at one time or another. He's written a total of 27 books, is the uh, chief wellness officer emeritus of the Cleveland Clinic, and uh, is really... I would say a very like-minded clinician to me, uh, although he's a few years ahead of me in pursuing lifestyle medicine, although biologically, I think we're probably about the same age because you've done even more uh, to reverse your aging. So uh, thank you very much for joining us today, Dr. Rosen. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Oh, it's my privilege. Uh, Thank you for inviting me. So I want to jump right in because I I uh, had the opportunity to you know look at this book before everybody else, which is awesome because the book is out um, in September. And uh, by the way, for listeners, we are going to be offering a copy to one lucky listener. So uh, hang on till the end to hear how to potentially win. But I want to jump right in because I thought this was just a fascinating book, and um, uh, you know longevity is very much a part of what I'm focused on as. Uh, lifestyle medicine board certified nutrition specialist. So, but I'm really interested in how you put together the team uh, for this particular book, because this isn't a traditional approach to have, you know, the, uh, tell us about your co-authors and how this all came together, because I think it gives us some really cool insight into what the book's really about. Um, I think that's exactly right. And you uh, seized on it, uh, and it's very perceptive of you. Um, there actually are two teams. One is the scientific team um, behind what we did and and in developing a app based on the book as well so people can do this. But the the book started because I used to play, and I still do, ping pong with a gentleman who's older than I am, Albert Ratner, who was probably 92 or 93 at the time we started doing this. And he would always want points in ping pong. That is, he would say our age difference should be the number of points I give him. And I would argue against that. And he actually, believe it or not, way back in the 1940s, went to college on a basketball scholarship. So he's a very coordinated person, but he would, um, if you will, trash talk me before the ping pong games. But the way he would do that would be to say, what's happening in medicine? What's happening in your field of medicine? Which, of course, has been aging. Um, And I would talk to him about that. And he was the CEO and chair of the board of a large a development company for City Enterprises. It's a pub- was a public company, and um, they did Barclays Place in New York, and uh, they did the redevelopment of Stapleton, etc., and, and a number of major um, things around the country and around the world. And uh, so he would always uh, say, you know, that's going to change 
populations and housing substantially. And then he said, let's get uh, an economist involved in this as well, um, Peter Linneman from the Wharton School. So if you will, what it was is we dis would I would present or talk to him about the science. He would say what's going to happen in, in uh, the development world. Peter Linneman would say what's happening in population. And so we decided, he said, let's write a book on this. So he was really the one who motivated. I thought it was through writing books after uh, my 21st uh, lay book, which was on food and nutrition, what to eat when and the what to eat when cookbook. And I thought that was it. Um, but he said, let's write a book because this is going to be longevity will be the biggest disruptor, the next disruptor, and will be something that changes society for the better. Um, and people will have to adapt to it. So let's um, and adapt to it because any disruptor, the chip was the last one, he said, any disruptor makes, makes you make an emotional change as well as a whole bunch of other changes. And really what the book is to do is to make it easy for people to try and make and to understand that emotional change. So the first third of the book is the science. So you're able to perceive this very well. The first third of the book is the science. The next third um, and the science of how we're going to get a 30-year extension in how long and well we live sometime in the next 10 years. The next, uh, and that's with an 80% probability, the next third of the book is on what's going to happen economically and in population and how you can make that work for you, how you can plan for it. And the last third of the book is what to do now in your choices of food. Um, I guess you, you would say it the same way I do. You should only eat food that loves you back and that you love. So food is a relationship. You wouldn't marry someone who's trying to kill you. You shouldn't eat food that's trying to kill you, right? Yeah. And so only eat food that you love and that loves you back. But it's also about um, all the other things. There are about 180 things. Um, and it goes into the supplements that uh, are appropriate, meaning where there's scientific data and where there isn't. And it goes into even skin aging procedures and what's, uh, what's appropriate and what isn't to help you prepare for the, uh, what we call the great age reboot, this likely 30 year jump in longevity in the next in the next 10 years. Yeah, there, I, I have so many questions and thoughts on it as I as I read through the book. But, um, you know, I thought it, it and, you know, to use a medical analogy, when I first um, read, you know, the hypothesis, I, you know, I thought it was a tough pill to swallow the idea of, you know, ex a 30 year extension in the you know next decade. But it was really, really what I found. I, I loved the part where you you walked through both the advances, like what people thought was possible in the 1900s, and also the family structure and longevity. I thought that was fascinating. So without giving the book away, can you talk briefly about those two things? Because it really helped me reframe the possibility of what you say. 
Yeah, I think the the easy way of looking at it is in 1900, no one could dream that infections would be cured or that mumps, measles, rubella, chicken pox could be prevented with vaccines, let alone polio and the other serious diseases. And no one even had the possible concept then of having a procedure done that took more than four minutes and didn't require five strong men holding you down on the table while someone did an operation. Well, now, obviously, we're living literally uh, 40 or 35 years longer than we did on average in 1900. Um, and MRI-guided robotic surgery done by a surgeon in Cleveland, Ohio, on a patient in Cleveland, Tennessee, is now routine. It's not an a exceptional thing. Um, so the, ch- the changes are coming in the mechanism of aging research. You know, we've extended life expectancy by two and a half years every decade since 1890, initially through sanitation and childhood disease management and then vaccines, and more lately with management of chronic diseases like high blood pressure and type 2 diabetes. But we're now getting exponential research being done in aging mechanisms. And there are 14 different areas. We go into them in the book. And the point of this isn't um, to get you to read the book and to understand the 14 areas. The point of it is to say, this is really happening. It's happening as we speak. I mean, just last week, we started there, not we meaning we in medicine, um, started to eliminate the PCKS9 protein creating gene. Um, That that reduces um, the 40% of Um, diseases that are now cardiovascular, stroke, and um, related diseases, if that really occurs. And, you know, that's a 40-patient trial. It really does work in two different animal species. And so now it's being tried in humans. These are literally exponential changes. So just like the chip took us from using, uh, if you will, those calculators that you'd, uh, if you use, you put in the numbers and you'd crank to get um, the next thing. Um, Now we have more power on our wrist than um, IBM had in all of their computers in 1965. So we're now, everything is changing dramatically with the chip. Now that same type of progress we expect to move into longevity. So instead of having a family where you never knew your grandparents, you're now going to know your great, great, great grandparents and family structures are going to change dramatically. Yeah, it's interesting that you bring up the PCSK9 uh, gene just because, you know, the flip side of this is, is, 
cost to society of living longer. But I think where you and I both agree is it's not about lifespan, it's about health span and living well. But it's interesting specifically with the PSK, the those class of, because there's a new class of medication, as you know, that uh, is made to block the effect of that protein, but it costs a fortune. So if we can go to the root cause and work on the genetics, you can start to understand how the cost of a population living longer can be offset by the progresses that some of the progresses that you're discussing. But it's interesting. I, I have to push back a little bit uh, because as optimistic as I am about technology and medicine, you know, my father is a cancer specialist and we, um, as much, as many resources have been put into cancer research over the last 50 years, it still seems like the progress isn't as much. So is it really? Let me object to that, okay? So in, two, in 1979, I got to talk to a graduate student named Jim Allison, and he worked with mice, and he said, you know, cancer cells send out a signal that they're normal so the immune system doesn't attack them. We're going to develop something that inhibits the immune system uh, from thinking these are normal cells. And in 2001, there were in drug company and NIH trials over three, um, I think it was over $350 million had been spent in each of seven human trials on what is called checkpoint inhibitors, and they had all failed. And Jim Allison was started his own, he said, look, I believe in this, um, and I started my own company to do that. He went, he was at Berkeley at the time, and in fact, in 2001, he went and, and the, the area he studied was metastatic malignant melanoma. It had a 1% five-year survival rate in 2001. And after one year of trial of this with his own drugs and, and both chemotherapy and chemotherapy plus the immunotherapy, 12.6% survival with chemotherapy alone, 12.3% with chemo and immuno, he was told to stop by the Drug Monitoring Committee. It will never have an effect. But in fact, he kept going. And on a night I saw him in a Berkeley coffee house, he was singing the immunotherapy blues. <laughs> and the night he got this letter from the Data Safety Monitoring Committee to stop. But he said, I'm going to continue. And he did his company. And so you've seen the ads on TV. K-Truda was the drug's name. It's mm. now owned by Bristol Myers, I believe. But 60% cure rate at five years not survival, cure from 1% because at three years, what he showed was in the chemotherapy alone, about a 3% survival, chemo and immuno, 11.6% in that era. It is now 60% cure rate. And they expect for many solid tumors um, that this will be over 80%. He did get the Nobel Prize for it. And the group at, in Boston at Dana-Farber has developed another checkpoint inhibitor. And by the way, you should know his band is known as 
the checkpoints. <laughs> it's that's, I love that. I was just at a blues festival in the mountains in Mammoth over the weekend. So I have a renewed passion for blues as we speak. It's funny that you mentioned that. No, I, I, I think there's been huge advances um, in cancer research. I just, I, I'm wondering about your timeline. I think 10 years is pretty aggressive. But and I also think I was going to say one thing. I was at um, a conference put on by CNN because I've worked with them for years. Um, and uh, one of the things that you mentioned in the book, I want to update because the cardiovas cardiovascular surgeon from San Antonio brought, actually created the first human heart from a 3D printer. And you talk about the book and she flew it out to California and it, it was able to live on its own for three weeks. And she had a model of it at this conference called Life Itself. So one of your predictions has already come true. We have actually created a heart, a functioning human heart with the complex vasculature, which you know, it's the most complex organ besides perhaps the brain to print. Um, but we're already there. So your book is, is obviously ahead of the curve. But so let's switch topics. I think that's fascinating about cancer. And as you know, somebody who I was, you know, considering going into radiation oncology, but at the time, like my father, it was a little too uh, depressing and also not enough patient contact for me. But, um, you know, what about obesity? Because you have some pretty uh, I, I guess I've been practicing obesity medicine for 22 years and I just, you know, the talk a little bit about that. Cause that, that's pretty cool. I think it's a bold prediction if it's even close to coming true. I mean, I think we are making tremendous strides in the treatment, um, and certainly understanding with some of the newer medications on the market. But I guess I don't have as much hope as you do in humans making the right choice. So even talk a little bit about your theories about obesity, and then talk about at the end of the day, the human choice, because and you do talk about this in the book, you do talk about how to build habits and how to self-engineer. But I want to get to that a little bit later. But let's talk a little bit about obesity because I would say that's probably really the number one killer that we have control over even today. And, and the number one age accelerator being diet and obesity and inflammation induced, you know, by diet. So talk a little bit about that. So, um, one of the ways that we have postulated you can stay thin is to increase your metabolic rate. So um, the uh, there are a whole bunch of, of pills in the in that have come into play, as you know, the ozempic, semaglutide, etc., that um, decrease appetite or decrease desire for food, um, but the real, if you will, great choice is not only that one, but is I want to enjoy food, but not gain weight with it. And so one of the thoughts was, could we use the, our mitochondria? Mitochondria are either thousands per cell. They take fat and glucose and turn it into energy, ATP. So the real reason this got developed was as you get older, 
you seem to have less energy, and you do. Um, in other words, I follow my six-year-old granddaughter and uh, five- and seven-year-old grandsons, and it's hard to keep up. Um, and that's why you give them back to their parents, because you can't <laughs> keep up with them. Um, but in fact, it is that we develop uh, these errors in our mitochondria. Well, um, someone named Yamanaka, who's a Japanese physician, found the three, found the four Yamanaka factors. He won the Nobel Prize for it, but recently three Three of those factors are used to reboot, to restore your original factory settings so you may have that much energy. But one of the ways of doing that is to say, let's take our white fat, that's the fat that causes, that hangs off our belly, that we have all the time and that, that make, causes, as you pointed out, inflammation in us, and let's regress it to what we call potent fat and then turn it into brown fat. Brown fat is what we have when we're eight days old, if you will, to keep us warm. When our moms can't swaddle us all the time, we developed a system that uses energy very efficiently to create heat so we stay warm. And it's in our shoulder regions and around our organs when we're young to keep us warm. It's brown fat. The reason it's brown is there are many more mitochondria per cell and per one of our own cells. And they're so dense that it makes the cell or the fat look brown. But it uses calories and it makes not only small humans thinner, but in animal models, it also does that. So it's now been done, that is in three different animal models, mice, um, rats, and now lambs, you can or take the white fat, regress it to pluripotent fat, turn it into brown fat, and get thinner. What has it done in lambs? And you'd say, why would um, the people at, uh, if you will, any university want to turn, uh, lamb, want thin lambs. Well, it turns out that fatty liver disease, which limits human life, also limits the lamb's life, limits the sheep from producing, uh, wool in New Zealand and Australia. And, um, so in universities, actually, this one was done in the United States. They took lambs that were fat and developing fatty liver disease, regressed their fat into brown fat, and in fact, they got thin and got rid of fatty liver disease. And if you will, it's accompaniment or the equivalent in, in lambs of type 2 diabetes. So just imagine, and that's starting to move into human trials now, but just imagine if we could eliminate obesity with a couple of shots to reverse your um, white fat, if you will, or to reprogram your white fat into brown fat. Very doable. We, we, a lot of this work, as you can tell, started exponentially growing at the start of the Human Genome Project, in, at the start of the end of the Human Genome Project in 2003 or 2002, 
2002 or 2003. And just to show you, um, Peter Diamandis is a, if, if you will, I love his analogy that, uh, if you will, um, the uh, 20, 30 linear steps get you 30 yards closer to your target, 30 exponential steps, 1, 2, 4, 8, 16, 32, etc., get you 30, get you 26 times around the earth. So that's how fast. And if you look at the amount of seed money now in aging research companies, um, Aptos, which uh, funded by, I guess, Bezos and Peter Thiel, as well as others, has $6 billion in seed round. That's huge amount to be able to do it. And the Saudi Arabian government through Revolution is putting a billion dollars a year into developing aging mechanism research, that translation into human work. So this is, so the prediction of in the next 10 years, yeah, I'm always too early. So, (laughs) you know, I I brought, I helped bring transesophageal echo over from uh, Europe to the United States in 1979. The first time we did it, the surgeon redid the mitral valve repair to, uh, and, and so I said, this is going to be the standard of care by 2000 and by 1983, four years later, I said, within four years, this will be standard of care. Well, it is standard of care, but it took till 2006 to become standard of care. So, um, I'm always, uh, perhaps a little too optimistic, but, but that's what, uh, I think it'll be within 10 years we will have the mechanism so that you can be 40 when your calendar age is 90. No, I think it's exciting. I think, and I think optimism drives perseverance. And if you don't have the optimism that it will happen someday, you're not going to persevere to actually make it a reality. But, and I think the brown fat, I mean, you know, as somebody who specializes in obesity medicine and nutrition, I think it's, it's a, it's one component. It's an important component. I think muscle is an important component and reducing age related sarcopenia, which is muscle loss. And so I think through a combination of, you know, of, of which what you talk about is one, you know, genetic engineering advances in medicine. Um, but at the end of the day, it, it is going to end up being lifestyle choices, which I think is, is nothing works without the lifestyle infrastructure. So it's funny that you say chasing your seven-year-olds. I'm 52. I'm going to take your test to see what my real age is, and then I'll let you know. But I'm an old, I have a seven-year-old son. So I, it's, it's, uh, Everything that you say resonates with me for sure. I wanna, I wanna ask you one quick question and then I want, the podcast is called Practically Healthy and I think you have some wonderful practically healthy tips that people can do now that they don't have to wait for all these advances in technology. But first I wanna ask you what you're most excited about in terms of advances in technology. I can tell you from my standpoint, as somebody who used to be a ski racer and has had four knee surgeries and really still wants to ski race with my kids who are on the ski team, what you talk about in terms of the uh, improvements in cartilage and, and stem cells, that to me is the most exciting. What's the most exciting for you that may happen in your lifetime in terms of um, some of these scientific advances? Well, you know, uh, um, I think 
all 14 areas, we will find developments. What we're seeing now is gene editing and getting rid of some of the genetic diseases. We're also seeing, um, if you will, the, the proteo, proteomics and um, AI being used. So as, you, as I wrote in the book, um, both Viagra and uh, Bumex, which is a, uh, a um, water pill, block the attachment of amyloid and tau to neurons and glial cells. And in epidemiologic studies, um, those inexpensive pills, they're under Bumax, butametamide, um, in the generic form is under $4 a month wholesale um, and retail, if you will. So uh, meaning there's no kickback, et cetera. It's under $4 a month to produce it and to make it, and it decreased, um, just like Viagra, uh, the risk of Alzheimer's disease and dementia by 70%. I expect we're going to get that as the first, that type of thing as the first change. And we're also beginning to see those genetic engineering things already moving into humans. But if you will, the thing I'm most excited about is what's called therapeutic plasma exchange. So therapeutic plasma exchange was literally started in 1960s by the convoys at UCSF with young blood into old animals and old blood into young animals. And it made the young animals old and the old animals young. And it's probably due to um, protein missignaling, just little folding differences in proteins. Now therapeutic plasma exchange donating a unit of blood um, once a week for five weeks and then once a month for four more months, total five months. And you look at every measure of cognitive function in people who already have early cognitive dysfunction. It's called the AMBAR studies, reversed this over a 15 month period. It was a phase 2B3A study at the FDA. They're now doing a phase three uh, second phase 3B study. And if this is successful, we will be able to say this is a way of reversing the most important thing I think to reverse, which is cognitive dysfunction. But in the lab, it also reverses heart dysfunction, endocrine dysfunction, even testicular dysfunction, um, and uh, in fact, skin aging. So um, if, if you will, would that be an amazing thing? Something that is so inexpensive that they pay kids, graduate students to donate plasma now, um, that you could do this um, and it be very inexpensive, very low risk. It's already done. Cleveland Clinic did 22,000 of them last year for other diseases already FDA approved, but wouldn't that be amazing if in two or three years we find a replication of that study, just like it's been shown in animals and in one large human randomized controlled trial. Um, and people want to look it up, it's A-M-B-A-R. Um, I have no relationship to the group. There was two of the study sites were in the U.S. It was two in Chile, two in Spain where it started, two in the U.S. One was at Pittsburgh and one was at the Cleveland Clinic. But in any case, it's a randomized controlled study 
that shows that this relatively inexpensive thing um, can reverse brain dysfunction. And if that actually comes out in the second study, whoa, don't even have to wait the full 10 years. No, I think that's, that's, that's exciting. And I, I do think, you know, cognitive decline, and for listeners who don't know that, that's really just brain health and processing speed and memory. Um, you know, if you don't have your mind, I'm not sure what you have, although I still do want to be able to ski race in my 90s too, in addition to being able to recall books that I've read as a child. But um, I think that's exciting. So uh, we don't have that much time left, but in the book, you talk about building habits, which I think are really important to this. You talk about the self-engineering tips and unforced errors. Let's finish with some some really practical advice that our listeners can do now, um, and hopefully they'll all buy the book so they'll know all the self-engineering tips and all the unforced errors to avoid. But let's give us your best, your best, uh, well, tell us a little bit about what the self-engineering and the enforced errors are, and then give us your best advice and what you do and what you don't do, because I one of the pet my pet peeves is doctors who act like they're perfect and they do everything right. Extra, you know. So there's got to be something that you don't do too. I'll tell you what I do that's bad is I drink too much wine. I I and I know that it's not a great thing, but I do so much else right. And at some point, it's not just the years to your life, it's the life in your years. And I've made that personal choice. But so I'm going to let you talk a little bit about self-engineering, unforced errors, and then some personal, you got to give us a little insight into uh, what Dr. Rosen does, because you've been in this field for a long time. Um, so what self-engineering is, is that when the Human Genome Project started, it was expected to find 300,000 genes, but they found only, we had only 22,500. What was the rest of the DNA in our nuclei? They called it junk DNA, both the, the NIH group and uh, if you will, Greg Venter's private group called it junk DNA. Turns out seven years later, the ENCODE project found that it was actually epigenes or switches that turned our genes on or off. And we have about 1,500 genes that are on at any one time. All genes do is make proteins or watch other genes. So about 1,500 of them are on. And by the time you're 50, you control about 80% of those switches. That is, you turn the switches on or off. And to give you the example, when you stress a muscle, whether it is by walking fast or by jogging or doing um, uh, resistance training, whatever you do, that muscle has a gene in it that makes the protein arisen. And what you do when you stress the muscle is you turn on that gene that makes the protein arisen. Arisen is a small protein that gets across your blood-brain barrier, and it in turn turns on another gene that makes brain-derived neurotrophic growth factor. That makes your brain and your hippocampus, your memory center, bigger and 
that memory center is the only area of the brain of uh, the body where size matters. It really <laughs> matters to how you function and you want a big hippocampus or a big memory center. So the key point is to understand that whether it is stress management or your food choices or even the wine choices, um, that what you do matters to which of your genes are on or which are off and you get to control about 80% of them, which means you have a huge ability to prepare for the great age reboot. Now, so that's what self-engineering is all about. Now, there are about 180 things that have been shown in at least two studies in humans to change your length and quality of life what we call your real age. That is, are you younger than your calendar age or older? I do all but a couple of those. Um, and so I'm not perfect, but I'm pretty damn good except for four days a year. Um, and the two things I don't do, I don't, excuse me, I don't sleep as much as I should. And because uh, we all, you know, want to do more things. And so you get compressed sleep. I did much worse in the old days, um, but um, I'm still not doing as much. And I have too much stress and don't manage it perfectly. Um, so those are, and stress is the greatest ager. So you need a posse and purpose. My purpose is what you're getting me to do today, which is to try and help people learn and plan for, um, to get younger and to stay younger. Um, the uh, So am I excited about this field? Absolutely. Do I do everything perfectly? No. Um, but we've given you some hints. So with stress management, posse, having six friends that you see um, and are vulnerable to once a month key, having a purpose in life that drives you, that optimism that you spoke about. Um, Food, you only want to eat food that you love and that loves your body back. And the keys are avoiding uh, red meat, processed red meat, processed food, egg yolks, um, and a few other things such as simple sugars, added syrup, simple carbohydrates that change your rate of in aging and inflammation. Um, there are four areas of exercise uh, that have been shown to make a difference in how long and well you live. Um, and then the unforced errors you said. So skiing without a helmet on, um, that's an unforced error. Texting while driving, that's an unforced error. Um, so there, there are errors like that um, that change because they will cause disability. Your musculoskeletal system or your brain or some other part of you um, that is at this time irreparable. So that's what we mean by an unforced error. Smoking and vaping are clearly unforced errors. Um, alcohol in a small amount, um, two or three or four nights a week, um, even every night a week, um, is a benefit to longevity. Too much at one time, that means more than two glasses for you at a time, more than three glasses for me at a time. Um, and the difference between men and women is because men have an extra uh, amount of acid alcohol dehydrogenase in their stomach lining and early intestinal lining, which degrades the alcohol before it gets into your body. 
in the in the mail that women don't have and that certain um, ethnic groups such as Asians don't have. So there are differences in the amount, um, but um, alcohol in general, um, if it relieves your stress, if it helps you to associate with other people, your posse, etc., probably has more benefits than just the alcohol alone. I love it. And the other enforced error, though, you talk a little bit about you, you kind of have to be your own advocate in our healthcare system and make sure that you I mean, I thought it was interesting, even things like getting a second opinion, um, you know, if you're dealing with something. But there's there's really there there's fascinating stuff in the book. And, uh, you know, as as somebody who's passionate about nutrition and lifestyle medicine and is also really kind of leaning into the field of precision nutrition, personalized nutrition, epi genetics, that sort of thing. I, I think, um, you know, I, I really hope that all the listeners get a copy of this because it's fascinating and it's inspiring. And, you know, again, I think there's there are truly some practical tips in the book. I mean, I think you, I love interviewing clinicians as well, because you have to be practical. You're not spending all of your time in a lab looking at test tubes. You're working with people like I am. And people don't act like cells or rats, although some people act like rats, but whatever, that's a whole nother conversation there. You don't want them in your posse. So, um, but thank you again. I wish we could talk for hours because, um, I think there's so much fascinating, um, and there's so much synergy between our goals in life and our careers. And I think that's going to help us live longer because I think we both have a purpose that's truly, truly worthwhile. And, um, so I thank you again, Dr. Royce. And the book is The Great Age Reboot. And, um, um, I uh, so uh, last question: Did you give Albert points in the ping pong game or not? <laughs> um, you know, I've only given him points in a few games. We we play every Saturday. Um, occasionally, he'll come up with a excuse on why I have to give him points. Um, and uh, the interesting thing is, as as I told you, he's pretty. Although he's eighteen years older than I am. He's pretty damn coordinated. As I said, he went to college on a basketball scholarship. And uh, if you will, um, he is able to beat me about 50% of the time without points. So it's a very evenly matched game. I don't know how much his trash talking beforehand <laughs> has to do with it, but he, he's a master um, and just a brilliant guy. So I'm, I'm honored to get to play with him and honored that he was a co-author. Peter Linneman, as I said, is an emeritus professor of economics at Wharton. So you'll learn, um, and, and I think this is an important point, you'll learn how longevity isn't a problem for society. It's actually a solution to our economic problem. It's a solution to uh, Social Security and the Medicare trust funds uh, not having enough money and even to lowering our tax rate in the long term. So um, to me, that was uh, some of the, as a physician, if you will, concerned about the science of this and only worried about how healthy you were. That was a big revolution and revelation to me. 
Yeah, no, I think that's I, I think that's incredibly important because that was one of my first concerns as I read the scientific advances was the economic impact and and even you know on on the population and and you know um, how we would manage that. But I think it's fascinating, and I do think you know the wisdom of elders uh, that saying is for a reason. And I think that you know the possible contribution and you talk about again I'm supposed to end the podcast but I'm still going um you know you talk about uh, embarking on fourth careers with changes in education which I, I think is really really fascinating and intriguing because with each venture that I've done in my life I bring more wisdom and, and more to it and, and I think it's better because I'm older and wiser so um but if we ever play ping pong, you're going to have to give me a lot of points because I am a terrible ping pong player. So uh, hopefully uh, we, we will. Uh, I, I, I want to just give you one one tip. If you want to see Albert and I play ping pong, we did a PBS special on the book that, that is in December. So hopefully the local PBS stations will uh, play it. But um, there's a bit of our ping pong game is shown there and you'll see how fast he is. And how quick his reactions are. He's, uh, I think he's 94, 95 now. And his reactions are uh, incredible, if you will, as someone who uh, is living this. That's amazing. We'll definitely, uh, we'll definitely look out for that and maybe even link to it on my, uh, on my social media when that comes out, because that sounds thank pretty, you. pretty inspiring. So again, Dr. Roizen, thank you. This has been a true pleasure. Uh, and the book again is The Great Age Reboot, and uh, it will actually be out the day after uh, this podcast is, or the day before this podcast is going to be released. So viewers are going to, listeners are going to be able to buy it immediately wherever books are sold. And um, I wish you the best of luck, and I hope to meet you in person someday. Uh, that would be my privilege. Thank you, and thank you for this. This is uh, hopefully um, we we will have uh, motivated some of our some of your listeners to change behavior. So thank you for the opportunity. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you. I really hope that you found the information in this podcast helpful. I know I did. And I welcome your feedback because I'm doing this for you. So if there's topics that you want to learn about, something that you want to learn more about, if there's something that you want to explain further that I've talked about, please let me know. Comment on my Instagram page. Send me an email, melina at drmelina.com. And definitely hit that subscribe button because I'm going to have great new content every single week, and I don't want you to miss an episode. That's it for now. Stay practically healthy.